On deck for Turning the Corner, the Athletics' Cody Stavenhagen and co-host Kieran Steckley discuss Akil Badu's rise, Casey Mai's concerns, and the state of Major League Baseball. Welcome into episode number three, Turning the Corner, a Detroit Tigers podcast. I am Kieran Steckley broadcasting in Dallas, Texas, over in Oakland County, Michigan, is my partner, Cody Stavenhagen. Cody, how are you doing today, buddy? Hey, doing all right, Kieran. We've only got like 10 days left until opening day, so uh, it's crunch time a little bit. It's crunch time, and it's an exciting time. You and I are both anticipating a second round or third round depending on how you look at it Oklahoma State matchup against Oregon State the OSUs versus the OSU we both are Oklahoma State alums and I am a Pistons fan so I just want to give a quick shout out I'm all in on Kate Cunningham I'm all in on Kate Cunningham going to Detroit if they can get the number one pick that nothing would make me happier than if they can get Kate I think he is an amazing player and one of those guys that can help turn the franchise around and a talent that quite frankly they haven't had since Grant Hill I mean it's been a long time since they've had the ability to get a guy like that so I just want to say for the record for all the Pistons fans out there I'm sold on Kate Cunningham I've watched every game he's played this year so uh, if you get a chance to watch him in the tournament, I highly recommend you do it. And you know me, I'm a skeptic. I like Cade. I hope he gets the pokes to uh, to the Sweet 16. I think he's going to be a good NBA player, not a great player. He would also help out my heart rate if he would like produce a little bit more in the first half and I wouldn't be sweating watching some of these games so much. Yes, yes. He, that, he is not a perfect prospect, but there's enough there that, like I said, I am all in. So to the Tigers... Several transactions this week, if you want to call it that. They optioned Christian Stewart, Alex Lange, Matt Manning, Zach Short, Franklin Perez, and Derek Hill to minor league camp. And then to minicamp, they sent Riley Green and Spencer Torkelson. So this seems just more like uh, bookkeeping, Cody. Is that the best way to, to look at it? Yeah, I think so. I, another note, there's no way to start a baseball podcast like talking about a more exciting sport, right? That's that's very 2021. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, now into some roster moves, some transactions, baby. I think these are very much just housekeeping moves. It's kind of what you expect at, at this point in spring training. Um, we're still going to get to see a little bit of Spencer Torkelson, Riley Green, Matt Manning in these spring training games, but A.J. Hinch kind of wants to create a feeling in the room, in the clubhouse, as to this thing is thinning out. It's kind of crunch time. Um, we're, we're narrowing the numbers. Like the, This roster is coming into focus. Um, for some of these guys, it's just kind of housekeeping. It's what you do at this time in camp. Some of them you need to get off the major league roster before a certain date, given um, some of the intricacies with rules and, and payments and all that um, for the younger prospects. Again, you're still going to see some of these guys. I think for Franklin Perez, I don't know if we'll see him again. He's one I'll be interested to watch. Um, but some of these other guys, I think maybe, you know, they'll go over to the mini camp, work on the backfield, and that's probably more beneficial for them anyway. And again, some of the guys who are, are attractions who we want to see, we'll get to see at least for a few more days. Uh, but the bottom line is, you know, the numbers are narrowing and it is time to start focusing on the major league roster versus the prospects at this point in camp. 
How many of those guys will take out Green and, and Spencer? How many of those guys you think are still on the major league radar so an injury occurs and they'll be on the short list uh, to come up? Yeah, I don't know, you know, unless there's um, kind of a litany of injuries, I don't know that any, any of them are going to break camp with the team, but I think Alex Lang is probably the name that first comes to mind. He had a really good camp, showed some good stuff out of the bullpen. I think when you compare his performance to Joe Jimenez, like, who was better, who looks more capable of being a good major league relief pitcher right now, I think uh, Lang is a guy we will definitely see um, ups at some point, maybe some point soon this year. Are we giving up on Derrick Hill? I don't want to give up on Derrick Hill. I'm a guy that I sort of hope, and I've mentioned it sort of in passing on Twitter, maybe in the in previous episodes of this podcast, that I would love a scenario where the Tigers get enough bats in their lineup and they can put Derrick Hill in center field and just let him do what he does best. I think that would be an amazing scenario. How realistic is that? I don't know. There would be a lot of things that would have to break the Tigers' way. But is that something that you think people in the organization kind of are thinking as well? Yeah, it's Derek Hill continues to be kind of a fascinating player to watch and that this guy was drafted in 2014. He's been in the organization like seven years now. He's not some young kid. Um, a lot of guys you'd be thinking, okay, it's time to move on. You forget Derek Hill does have a couple of elite tools. He is an elite center fielder, could be at the major league level in Comerica Park. He's that good. Um, he would probably be, you know, a, a, an elite base runner, potentially just based on his speed alone. I think he has good instincts on the base paths as well. Now, the question is, like, can he hit 200 in the major leagues? I, I don't know. That's a major, you know, complication. I can tell you there are people in the Tigers organization who are not totally done with Derek Hill for the reasons that, that we've just talked about. I think he's going to stick around on this 40-man roster and I don't know that it's likely to happen, but I think there is a world which in two years, maybe Riley Green develops and you get another power bat in left field and you sign a star shortstop and suddenly your lineup's really good and maybe you can justify Derek Hills, are, we have an elite center fielder and he hits in the nine hole and if he gets one, great. If not, uh, we roll it over the top of the order and then we rake up there anyway. That, as you said, requires a lot going right. I probably wouldn't project it, but I think there's a possibility, and I think that's why we're going to see Derek Hill stick around a little bit. I'm going to bring up another topic, though. I think almost an overlooked storyline in this camp, Kristen Stewart's been, like, forgotten about. He's been, like, given up on. Um, and maybe that's justified because he doesn't have an elite tool. He is a poor defender. He has a terrible arm. He's an average base runner at best. His best tool is hitting for power, and he has struggled to get to that power in Major League games. So it's still kind of crazy. This is a guy who just two years ago we were like, is this the Dark Horse Rookie of the Year candidate? Is he going to bop 25 to 30 homers in the big leagues? Like, even if he plays subpar defense, maybe that's okay if he can hit. And now it's like, well, he had one year where he was injured a lot and never really got going, and then he struggled in the 60-game season, and now it's like, well, we're done with him. But I think that tells you something about how people have evaluated with him. They just don't see much value. He struggled to hit spin in the big leagues. Um, you know, he struggled to hit breaking balls under his hands. I think there's still a world in which this guy can hit for some pop. But it seems like there is very little faith in Kristen Stewart. And maybe he is a guy who's on the edge of, uh, you know, how much longer will he stick around on the 40-man? 
This reminds me, I can have a little bit of story time. So I went to Carrollton Creekview High School, has a pretty good baseball program, you know, mixed among the uh, Dallas suburbs. And one of the first great athletes, the school only opened in 1998, one of the first great athletes was Taylor Teagarden, who uh, was drafted by the Cubs in like the 40th or 30-something round or whatever out of high school, All-State player, decided to go to the University of Texas. I believe he was on their national championship team, if memory serves me correct, won like the Golden Spikes Award, like very high, acc- high acclaim as a college catcher, gets drafted. Uh, by the Texas Rangers, gets to the big leagues, and what, his first hit on one of his first games is like a go-ahead home run, and you know this whole area is going bonkers for Taylor Teagarden. And after that, he didn't really do a whole lot of uh, noise at the major league level. He bounced around several teams. He, he just couldn't stick it out. And one of my baseball coaches in high school was a guy who was teammates with him at Creekview, and I was like, "Hey, yo, what, what's with your boy Taylor?" And he goes, "It's hard to hit major league pitching, dude." <laughs> and that's what I think of Christian Stewart. Like, he played at the University of Tennessee, very fine program, relative high draft pick, goes through the you know minor league system, gets to the big leagues. It's hard to hit major league pitching, dude. And maybe sometimes it that it's that simple. I think Stewart is still a little perplexing because he has hit at every level. He was a three-time organizational hitter of the year in the system. He hit well in AAA. The big leagues, he has not hit well, um, and, and it seems as though there's dwindling faith that he will ever hit well. You're right. It goes to show you how hard it is. Uh, That's why one reason I think on this podcast a lot, we will tell you to resist hype. Everyone just relax a little bit. Not going to hate on top-tier prospects. I think Riley Green and Spencer Torkelson are going to have good MLB careers. But let's settle down before we put anyone in the Hall of Fame because it's really hard. We've seen there are a million Taylor Teagardens out there. Um, A.J. Hinch was almost like a Taylor Teagarden himself. I mean, we've seen it time and time again. This is a hard game. It's a hard sport. It's unfortunate. It's kind of sad. I'm sure it's tough to be Kristen Stewart and to think, okay, I hit 30 homers at AAA. Why can't I hit in the big leagues? But the bottom line is, if you can't hit a curveball, if you can't hit spin, pitchers also pick up on that more. That's all they're going to throw you. They're going to attack your weak points constantly. And if you're not able to make those adjustments, or if you have a fatal flaw in your game or your swing, it will be exposed. It's a tough sport. What do we make of Spencer and Riley's uh, go at spin training so far? Yeah, that's a uh, somewhat relevant question because I think there are people out there who are who are going to be a little disappointed, right? You look at the numbers, Spencer Torkelson, uh, he has 20 at-bats and he has one hit and he has 12 strikeouts in spring training. Probably not what you want from your 1-1 pick. Uh, I'm not a fan of the 12 strikeouts. That's, that's actually pretty extreme. But again, as I think I've written, okay, this is a guy who's not ready for the major leagues. So again... Those of you who in August are like, why don't you bring up Torque? Well, this is why. It's really hard. Kristen Stewart is why. It's really hard to hit in the majors. The eye test Torkelson has still passed for me. His swing looks pretty. I'd like to see him make a little more contact. Um, but I think there's a guy that could easily rake Class A pitching. I think he's been almost a little bit overly passive in the strike zone, kind of like Isak Paredes was in his debut last year. I'd like to see Torque maybe get a little ag- more aggressive early in the count. 
Um, strikeouts looking are like kind of an interesting topic there. It's almost like that's a sign you have a good eye a lot. This guy's taken some strike threes that were probably a ball or two off the plate. But it almost goes back to that high school like mentality of like, I don't know, at a certain point you got to protect the plate. Like at a certain point you can't leave it in the umpire's hands. Um, also, you know, when you're in the big leagues and you're getting more consistent umpiring, you're probably where you just have a reputation. Like Miguel Cabrera gets those calls a lot because he is Miguel Cabrera. Um, I think Torque will be fine. I think he needs to go down to class A and I think we'll see him hit a lot of homers in West Michigan and everything will be okay. Riley Green, he's hitting 167 this spring. Uh, we haven't seen him hit a homer like we did last spring. It's been a little unfortunate. I think I've also been encouraged by the plate discipline Riley Green has shown. He's shown he looks like an older, more advanced, more mature hitter than he did at this point a year ago. I think there's a little more swing and miss in his game than some people have realized. I started to get concerned about that a little bit last summer. We have saw it a lot this spring. Um, but again... This guy's facing the toughest pitching of his life. His one base numbers are actually still pretty good. Uh, I think he's got a 375 OBP this spring, so th and he's never even actually got going hitting the ball. So I think that bodes well for him. Let's see Riley Green in Double A again and again. You know, I think he'll be a lot more ready to consistently perform at this level this time next year. We both project Spencer to eventually go to first base. Yeah. Where do you think Riley sits as his ideal outfield spot? Yeah, I think it's definitely a corner, and that's not to detract from him as a center fielder. I think he's a better fielder than anyone except maybe the Tigers scouts who were on him the whole time thought he was. I've been impressed. Um, some I, I still almost think he could maybe be an average Major League center fielder, but as much work as he's done with his athleticism, again, you watch him and Derek Hill and you can see the difference between a gold glove type center fielder and a, okay, maybe this guy can be a league average center fielder. I don't think he covers quite enough ground, especially in Comerica Park. I think it's going to have make more sense to play him in the corners. Uh, when you start talking left or right field, it's, it's interesting. I think the jury is still out a little bit. We've seen him kind of more in right field. A.J. Hinch this morning actually said we need to get him looks in left a little more. Um, I'm still undecided on what I think of his arm. I don't think I've seen a lot of game reps where we've really got to judge his arm. Um, there's some people who think he has a plus arm. There's some people who think he has a uh, below average arm, and that'll probably ultimately determine is he a left fielder or a right fielder. My gut kind of tells me left. I think I like Riley Green the most in left, and if you can compare him, whether it's Derek Hill or another guy who covers a lot of ground, then I think you're looking at, at a, the makings of a pretty good defensive outfield. And I also like a plus arm in right field. I don't know who that ends up being in this system, uh, but I think that's probably what A.J. Hinch is thinking a little bit as well. Yeah, and for the record, I'm all in on just giving him the opportunity to try center field i think uh, yeah, I, I think i think why that. not and and as you said he's performed far better than i expected uh given what was reported about him when the tigers drafted him so uh right field i i have like you said i haven't seen his arm either i tend not to think based on my what i've read that he has quote unquote elite arm but then again you know he's still barely a teenager just out of teenage years so you know, that could change. There's a lot about his body that could change. Uh, and 
make the decision for what kind of fielder he will be. Maybe he does develop, you know, some great arm strength. I don't know. But uh, for now, center field, I think, is perfect spot. Why not let him try it out? And again, same thing with Spencer at third base. Uh, so to the other top prospect, a guy who has made the big leagues and has been projected to be on the big league roster, Casey Mize. He pitched this week. Uh, his spring numbers, I, I just pulled some of them up. He's got 12 strikeouts in 10 innings, but also 10 walks. And he's allowed 11 runs on 12 hits, including four homers in his last two starts. What is the concern level for Casey Mize to this point? This is a delicate question. How do you express some concern without raising the alarm, sounding the alarms, Casey Mize is a bust. Because we're not going to do that. Casey Mize is not a bust. Is there some concern? I've seen Casey Mize throw a lot in person now. And rarely have I seen him command the strike zone. The scouting report on this guy out of Auburn was, you know, plus plus command. He's always around the strike zone. And when Casey struggled in his seven big league starts last year, he kind of said, well, you know, this lack of command is unlike me. That won't happen. Like, that'll sort itself out. In spring training, we've seen Casey Mize struggle with command. The first time I saw Casey Mize pitch, his first year in spring training, he tended to struggle with command. He was a little bit better last year, last spring. There were still times where he just wasn't spotting the fastball. That's what got him in trouble at the big leagues last year. He was behind in the count a lot. When he was ahead, sometimes he was leaving that splitter too elevated. I think this idea of Casey Mize having elite command might be a little bit of a myth because at some point, if you have elite command, you have to show it in games. He hasn't done that. I think that's concerning. Um, Same time, the stuff has been there. We've seen the flashes of terrific stuff. We saw it in his most recent outing. He looked great in the first inning. He looked pretty good in the second inning, just left one ball a little bit too much over the plate, a breaking ball, got smacked. He was okay in the third, and then he really fell apart in the fourth, partially because his pitch count was high, because he wasn't getting ahead and mowing down hitters. Um, So it's weird. Like This is still a guy who threw a no-hitter in his double-A debut. Fun nugget. He actually plunked the first batter in that uh, that double-header. That's why it wasn't a perfect game. But you have to have pretty good command to throw a no-hitter regardless, although I guess Nolan Ryan uh, could could argue about that. So it's like, I don't know. I want to see this guy command the strike zone. He's going to have to, to figure it out. He's going to have to get ahead. That's what he's been working on all offseason, all spring. Why hasn't it translated? Is there something mechanical there? I don't know. There's nothing, you know, I, he still totally passes the eye test. For me, the stuff is there a lot. Uh, at some point, you got to show command. So I, I think, yeah, I don't feel as good about Casey Mize as I did this time a year ago, I feel worse about him than I did at the end of last uh, last fall. I wasn't that worried after seven somewhat rocky MLB starts because the stuff was still there. It's like he'll figure it out in time. I am definitely concerned by the consistent lack of command. That's the type of thing that can be the difference between are you an ace or are you Kevin Gossman? Are you an ace or are you a, a you know a number three starter in the big leagues? He's still young. He's still got time to figure it out, but. I'd like to see some command at some point. I think that's a totally fair criticism. Yeah, that is fair. And to bring it back to my boy Kate Cunningham for a second, even though he's projected to be the number one overall pick, that doesn't 
necessarily automatically mean like this guy should go in the Hall of Fame. Right. Sometimes it just means we think his skill sets put him above everybody else in his peer group, or in this case, a draft class. I think some similar set things were said about Casey Mize in the lead-up to him getting picked number one overall, where people weren't saying that he was a surefire ace. Like, the potential was there, but it was like, this guy could be, like, one of the best number twos in Major League Baseball. That was sort of the uh, the way of catching themselves when they were discussing what his ceiling was. So maybe with the, the starts in the fall and, or excuse me, in the summer, and then what we've seen in spring training, maybe it's kind of a reminder that, yes, he has top-notch potential, but it's not like he is a flawless young player. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And th- there are people in the Tigers front office who hate the, like, oh, Mize is actually better as a number two. And that's because they drafted him. Of course, they're going to be a little biased. I think the scouting industry has long thought this is a guy with a really high floor. Uh, maybe his ceiling isn't quite, you know, Hall of Fame level. Again, I, yeah, Cade Cunningham, actually a pretty good comparison there. I think Casey Mize still has a pretty high floor. This is a guy who's going to pitch in the big leagues so long as he stays healthy, which is a little bit of another concern. But so long as his arm is healthy, he's going to pitch in the big leagues a long time. Is he a Hall of Famer? Eh, I don't know. Is he a true quote-unquote ace, a number one, like on a playoff team? I'm not quite sold on that. But this is a guy who's going to be a good big league starter. And if you get a good big league starter at the top of the draft, that's that's actually pretty valuable for you. Helps that the Tigers have a guy, a ninth-round pick in Tarek Skubal, who is shining right now and who, again, we'll see. We're going to run into ups and downs with Skubal, too. But right now, Skubal looks terrific. I was about to say, uh, if talk about the kind of tone of the conversation we have with Casey Mines, we're having with Skubal, if we were to make him the main source of the topic, it would be a completely different tone. I mean, this guy is lights out right now. And to a degree, I think that's, like, why I'm getting a little tired of the, like, okay, Casey Mize will figure it out. Like, Casey Mize still has good commands because Tarek Skubal can have success. Why can't Casey Mize have success? Like, at some point, you do have to show it in games. Tarek Skubal has been showing it in games. His stuff has been lights out. His fastball has really pounded the strike zone. I think he still needs to polish up his secondary pitches a lot, but... He can throw some good sliders. He started breaking out that curveball more, which I really like when he can spot it. He's now working on that Mize-esque splitter, as, as a lot of people have talked about. He's still got polishing to do. His secondary pitches aren't all the way there, but guy's pounding uh, the strike zone with fastballs. He's getting ahead, and then he's chewing hitters up. He's been so fun. Like Daniel Norris said it best this week. He's just fun to watch pitch, and that's how I've always felt about Scooble. When he's on the mound, you want to watch, you want to be dialed in, and it seems like even like even in the games he struggled last year, you could just see, like, oh, hitters aren't enjoying facing this kid right now. Where are those two, uh, Mize and Scooble, sort of slide in right now, rotation-wise? I think Scooble has pretty much earned his rotation spot. Uh, the Tigers have obviously not quite declared that yet, but I think it's pretty clear this guy's going to be in your opening day rotation the exact order of the opening day rotation is also very much in flux. I thought they were pushing Spencer Turnbull back a couple days to get him in line to start opening day. Turns out he's in COVID-19 protocols. Who knows if he'll even be ready for opening day. We really have no idea what his status is like or how long he will be away from the team. So, you know, I'm not going to say 
Scoobles, your number three or your number four. Like, this might be a year in which that stuff kind of doesn't matter. It's kind of arbitrary anyway. I think Mize needs to show you something in his next spring outing. He's right now very much on the verge. Is he actually going to make this team or not? Um, I think the performance of Julio Tehran and Jose Urania is not great for Casey Mize right now. It's like, how much can you really, especially if you open with a five-man rotation, which I think the Tigers will, can you justify putting Mize in there right now? I think there's a world. My preferred world still has Mize in the rotation because you called this guy up for a reason. You talk about someone whose finishing touches probably need to happen at the big league level. I think it's safe to say Casey Mize is in that category. Um, so can you bump Tehran to the bullpen? Maybe. What do you do with Michael Fulmer? It seems like they're going to experiment with him in the bullpen. That's a whole other complicated conversation. But I think you got to see something out of Casey Mize to earn it here in the, the final 10 days of camp. Speaking of seeing something, this takes us perfectly to the star of camp, Akil Badu, the Rule 5 draft pick who hadn't played above single A, making himself look like a big leaguer. And I'll, and I'll tell you what, when I watch him, I look at a guy who feels like he belongs. He's in the box, he's you know strutting his stuff, he's got a little Gary Sheffield vibe to him, and the tools that we were all told about when the Tigers selected him, they're all there. They were, they were very apparent very quickly. It's one of those things where, like, I can see him being on the big league team, but then I sort of take a step back and I think, yeah, but this guy does not have a track record of hitting in professional baseball. And yes, he's fast and, you know, the feeling potential is there and he's performed well in spring training, but it's one of those things where it's like, how much do I believe Versus how much have I already seen? And I don't know where to come down on that, Cody. It's it's so really good. Uh, it's, it's like so complex in that, okay, like you just pointed out. One thing we don't like to do today is hold opposing ideas, you know, in our minds at once. Or see both sides of a situation. There are people who want to declare that Akil Badu is Joe DiMaggio. And then there are people who want to declare... This guy hit 214 in Class A. He can't be on your roster. Um, I don't have a great way to, like, thread that needle. I would say, Akil, if you're listening to this, Akil Badu's mom, the Tigers pro scouting department, great job. Like, this guy has went out, and he's done all you can ask. I think he's played his way to a roster spot. He's played so well. You couldn't ask anything more. He deserves credit for that. The Tigers pro scouting department deserves credit for seeing the tools and the potential in this guy. And then, if you're the guy who's in charge of drawing out a roster, whether it's A.J. Hinch or, or even Alavila, who I'm sure Alavila's thrilled to have Akil Badu playing this well, but you got to be like, this is nothing could mo- more possibly complicate the makeup of our opening day roster than a Rule 5 pick who hit 214 in Class A suddenly being the best player in spring training. Because, right, how much can you believe that he's going to produce like this in the major leagues? Everything I know about baseball tells me I look at this guy's track record and I say, if Kristen Stewart cannot hit in the big leagues, what would lead us to believe that Akil Badu can hit in the big leagues? A guy who didn't hit in Class A, who has a history of some swing and miss. Badu walks a little bit, and that bodes well. That's in his favor. Um, 
I think he's earned a roster spot. I don't know if you can cut him. I don't think you want to send him back to the Twins at this point. But I think you're still going to end up having to kind of stash him on the end of the bench. I think there's a world in which it's May and Akil Badu is like 2 for 20. And you're like, are we really going to keep hanging on to him? Um, are you going to go with a short bench and you're like short an infielder? Um, like all that is really, really complicated. I think it creates a lot of headaches because the guy has played so well. Um, so it's it's almost like funny to talk about. I think Badu's going to make this roster unless he just totally falls apart in the next 10 days. But I don't know if that's actually good for like the long-term health of this team. I guess the, the real long-term question is, okay, how, how good is Akil Badu going to be in two more years? Which I still question because he just doesn't quite have a track record of hitting. For as impressive as he is, do you really need another Derek Hill or like an in-between between a Daz Cameron and Derek Hill? That's kind of what I think he might be long-term, and uh, you already have a couple of guys like that in the organization. Well, you know, this is one of the... His situation is one of those things that can kind of put some coaching cliches to the test because AJ, just like every other coach and every other sport, is going to say, like, playing time, you have to earn it. You, you got to earn playing time. And it would be a really tough sell for as well as he's been playing to then cut him, send him back, you know, do whatever. Like, that would be a tough sell for a manager trying to establish a culture within the organization, in my opinion. And, and you mentioned the long-term thing. That's really what's been kicking around in my head. Because, obviously, we know the Tigers aren't where they want to be or need to be to be true contenders. They're several years away from that. However... If you're projecting guys that could be a part of that plan, I think there's an argument for Badu to be in that discussion because A, he's young, B, you've spent resources on him, and C, the guy whose spot on the roster he's going to be taking most likely isn't a dude that you're looking at to be on the team in three years, best case scenario. So I think there's an argument for this is the better long-term play because we don't want to lose assets. And right now he's an asset. Yeah. And so like I, I, I'm like you. I've just come to accept I just come to accept that he's gonna be on the team. It's kinda like during the college football season when Ohio there was always an argument like will Ohio State be in the final four? I was like, they're gonna be in the final four. Like I didn't like I didn't like debate it in my head or with my friends or whatever. I just <laughs> right. knew the committee was gonna put them in the final four. I've accepted on that same token that Badu's going to be on the roster. So who doesn't make it or what uh, what position is one guy less because he essentially forced his way into a rotation uh, that was already loaded with bodies? Yeah, I think it's kind of funny. One idea that's been brought up is like, oh, well, option Victor Reyes. Victor Reyes, who just a few months ago we were touting as, oh, what a great talent acquisition. The Rule 5 draft, the Tigers did such a great job. Now it's like, ah, oh, we can just send Reyes to AAA. In a way, that is a good job. If you get two somewhat capable Major League players out of the Rule 5 draft, that's better than most people do in the Rule 5 draft. Now, I would kind of argue, why are you taking Rule 5 picks on, like, a fifth outfielder? I always thought the Badu, like, I'd, I was a little puzzled by why they took an outfielder. Clearly, now maybe we're seeing it a little more. They thought that this was a guy who could contribute, so they took him, you know? 
Like, that's good. As an organization, that's your goal. At the same time, it speaks to where the Tigers are in an organization and that we are kind of fighting over 4A players or, like, you know, 4th, 5th outfielders on Major League teams. Um, Victor Reyes, good player, good value in the Rule 5 draft. Not really probably going to be a starter on a postseason team. There's another camp that's like, oh, just send Jacoby Jones to AAA. I think that's a little foolish. Jacoby Jones, um, Evan Woodbury of Live tweeted out a great stat, and I forget the, the date he had on it. But long story short, Jacoby Jones has been your most effective offensive player over um, about the past year, uh, maybe even going back to toward the end of 2019. I don't think you just send that guy to AAA in a team that, on a team that is struggling to produce runs in spring training, you don't just send Jacoby Jones to AAA so you can keep Akil Badu. I don't think that's wise. I think if you really want to carry Badu, I think you go with a short bench on the infield so a guy like Harold Castro doesn't make the club. You can't keep Paredes and Renato Nunez. And chances are about a month into the season, another outfielder pulls a hamstring or, or something happens where the roster kind of works itself out. I think that's another thing. We tend to obsess over the opening day roster when we're probably going to see more transactions within two or three days of opening day. Like, the opening day roster is not what the roster will look like for the long term. Um, but Dues earned a spot. I think it's going to be a little awkward having to carry five outfielders. I also think that will probably take care of itself within a week or two. Now, you mentioned Tigers fans being focused on just by definition, sort of like fringe roster guys. That is a Detroit thing, man. Like, you, you can you can ask your boy James at The Athletic, who covers the Pistons, also does a phenomenal job. His Twitter mentions are just filled with people that are really curious about how come second-round picks aren't getting 20 minutes a game. And, and Chris Burke can attest, too, for the Lions coverage. It's like how obsessed... Lions fans, and look, myself included on all this stuff, how obsessed Lions fans are with the latest undrafted rookie free agent who's trying to make the team and, like, should he get over this guy or whatever. I mean, that occupies a lot of headspace for the Detroit sports fan. Uh, overall, I think it's kind of cool. I think it's a good thing. I think it, it shows how how much of a sports town Detroit is and how passionate the fan bases are. So that's... That's how we occupy our time right now, especially when none of these franchises are close to being perennial winners. And like I said, Badu's a guy that sometimes when I project what the best course of action is, I sort of look at what resources you've poured into somebody or something, and I think you got to let it play out. I sort of think that with... Um, with general managers and head coaches and stuff like that, it's like sometimes, like, all right, you made a commitment to this, you would be shortchanging yourself to shortchange that process. So you took him knowing the ramifications of that pick. To just send him back, especially when he's played well, or to try to do the dance between, like, you know, making a trade, clearing waivers, like all that stuff, I just feel like you're sort. Then why'd you take him in the first place? So you took him, he performed well. I think you got to put him on the roster, even though, like you said, he could be two for his first 20. I think that's a, a really good point. I think if you really want to get into, like, hindsight, don't take him in the first place if you don't want to have to deal with this jumble. Obviously, right. they took him because they thought there was something there, 
it looks like at least to some degree they were right so again not this is not a criticism of tigers pro scouting but it's like okay you had four outfielders and christian stewart and then you signed nomar mazara so either don't take an outfielder in the rule five or like don't sign mazara or this this is just something that happens in a way it's a good problem to have it means you have five outfielders who are probably all worthy of being in the roster um it leads up to a little bit of another point, a little bit of a crossroads we are arriving at in this rebuild, something I think we might see play out over the next week. You bring up loyalty, resources. How long do you stay loyal? How long is too long? Uh, the Tigers are nearing that point with some first-round picks, with Bo Burrows, with Kristen Stewart, um, Kyle Funkhauser, what wasn't the first round, but Kyle Funkhauser, like, some guys that the organization has reason to be loyal to. Derek Hill, we've already talked about. How much more rope do you give him? To give them even uh, a, a Joe Jimenez, like again versus Alex Lang. How much longer are you loyal to Joe just because he's Joe? How much longer is Michael Fulmer in the rotation just because he's Michael Fulmer? Versus at what point do we take our best twenty-six guys and try to win some baseball games? I think the Tigers are nearing the point where. You can't keep giving some of these guys chances. It's time to take the best dudes and roll. I think Badu's interesting because he's a newer investment. But some of these older investments, it's going to be time to cut ties with. It'll be interesting if you add a Nunez, a Tehran to the roster. That's two guys who have to go from the 40-man who's going from that 40-man. You know, I think Bo Burrows is, is probably a first name that comes to mind. Stewart's going to be on the block. Even Franklin Perez, like, I, I think he sticks around a little longer because he's Franklin Perez, but how long can you throw 88 to 90 and be on the 40-man roster? I think that's a very valid question. You don't want to get rid of these guys with upside. You don't. I don't want to see Franklin Perez or Kyle Funkhauser pitching in the Dodgers or the Rays organization. But at some point, if they're not your best 26 guys, if they're not among your best 40 guys, like, what do you do? And that's where Alavila and AJ Hinch are going to have to work together to make some really tough decisions, kind of some de decisions that conflict where I could see Hinch wanting one thing and the Tigers front office wanting another simply based on like, yeah, on, on loyalty versus the best 26 guys versus investments. It's a hard balance for any organization to strike. Yeah. So we're both in agreement to sort of summarize it. We're both in agreement. Looks like he's on the roster, how that plays out. We'll have to see, but you got to give the guy credit. You got to give the guy credit. He came in with long odds, and he performed well. So I think overall this is a good story once you sort of get over what his baseball reference page says to this point. So I just wanted to spend a couple minutes um, on Miguel Cabrera doing a little sit-down interview with ESPN, really going the bat for A.J. Hinch saying uh, that's BS about people who sort of hold Hinch accountable for the sign-stealing scandal. Uh, we don't get a lot of this from Miguel Cabrera, so I feel like it's 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 a worthy thing to talk about. It's It seems like this is a good thing for the locker room that you have your future Hall of Famer sort of defending his manager before they've really had the time to establish a true relationship. I think sometimes we don't give Miguel Cabrera enough credit. Like, it's easy to be like, oh, he's Miggy. Like, he's not the smartest guy. He's a great hitter, but, like, he's just Miggy. This guy is an all-time great, and this guy has been around Major League Baseball a long time, 
and he might not be, um, you know, I don't know. He's not like your prototypical clubhouse leader. He's just not. But this guy knows what's up. I think A.J. Hinch has gained his respect because I think he sees that A.J. Hinch is about business, is about trying to win. Uh, I think A.J. Hinch, has, I get the sense, has leveled with Miguel Cabrera about things a little bit more. And that's one thing Jim Leland was tremendous at was everyone was getting treated the same. Didn't matter if you were Barry Bonds or Gary Sheffield or Padre Rodriguez. I think A.J. Hinch has brought a little bit more of that has treated Miguel Cabrera a little bit more of like a level playing field. And I think Miguel Cabrera is absolutely smart enough to realize that and kind of say, okay, like game respect game. Um, with the Astros stuff, it's also a little complicated because Cabrera's close with some of those guys, especially Jose Altuve. Um, last year, he claimed to the Detroit News that uh, Altuve told him he didn't do anything wrong, he didn't steal the signs, whatever, and Cabrera believed him. So that kind of gets in the weeds there where, like, you're really going to tell me Jose Altuve didn't benefit from the trash can bangs at all because I, I, I believe there's evidence that he did. Um, so it's also interesting that Cabrera would be a perfect statesman to come out against cheating to say that that title should be tainted to say how many home runs would I have if I knew when, when I had a breaking ball coming. Miguel Cabrera would be a great guy to say that. But I think he, largely because of his allegiances to Jose Altuve, he has not gone that route. He's been, uh, you know, a little more, you know, hesitant to speak out against the Astros. And I think in his experience with A.J. Hinch, he has been impressed. And so I, I think that gets into uh, to what he told ESPN this past week. All right, so let's get into some discussions about baseball in general. Um, I'll just toss it up to you with a simple, what is the status and the health of Major League Baseball? Ooh, I wasn't prepared for this one. It is... Uh, that was on purpose. <laughs> not great, but also not as bad as we like to think. I don't think the sport is dying. I think there's still plenty of interest and support in local markets. I think people are excited to go back to baseball games this year. I think you saw it with how quickly spring training games sold out. Same time... The sport's got to do something to become a little more, bit more relevant. I think it's marketing more than it is the on-field product. Like, I think the NFL and NBA are great at marketing, and baseball is just not. People clearly still like the game of baseball. Yeah, it can be a little slow. Like, yeah, it can drag on. People like the game of baseball. People like to tune in for the postseason. Like, there's not a problem with your sport. Your sport has lasted a long time. I think you got to market it better. Okay, that's something that... that that's something that I always push back on when people say like games are too long or too slow or whatever. It's like college football is like number two most popular sport in this country. Those games are four hours. You and I have been to a ton of college football games in our young lives. And those things are long endeavors. The half times are like 40 minutes. I mean, that's one of the best things about the NFL. It's like a 10 minute halftime. You go and and, you know, you go to the bathroom, you come back, second half starts. Let me tell you the most miserable sporting event I've ever watched in person. Um, other than, like, you know, sixth graders playing t-ball. That, that doesn't count. Or six-year-olds. Um, most miserable I've ever been at a sporting event. Baker Mayfield, Oklahoma. Patrick Mahomes, Texas Tech. Legendary game. There have been oral histories done about this game. <laughs> Everyone loves it. They're like, wow, that must have been crazy. No. I was there. You get, Most of you guys weren't. I was there, and I watched it, and it was four hours, and it was 
a long pass and the guy runs into the end zone, another long pass, the guy runs in the end zone. Oh, incomplete pass. Let's chill for, you know, 45 seconds. It was terrible to watch in person. It was not exciting. It was so over the top offensively that it was not interesting to watch. And it took forever. And you're in Lubbock, Texas, and you have a two drive, two hour drive back to Amarillo that night. Not fun. Not fun to attend. I would watch a regular season baseball game before I watched that game. Yeah, that, that's that's awesome. So time is not a real thing. It, it was really my main point in terms of the product. How long it takes doesn't really matter. Interest level, speed of the flow of the game, that's a different discussion. But just in terms of like how long a Major League Baseball game uh, takes, I don't really think is relevant. I think you were spot on with the marketing. The whole Rob that was that last year or two years ago where Mike Trout and Rob Manfred were like, you know, like baseball doesn't do enough for me, and Rob's like, well, actually, you don't say enough, and this like, yeah. like this really weird thing where like the games, arguably the game's most high-profile star and the commissioner are sort of like asking each other to do more. Like you don't really see you don't see that a whole lot. Um, there is. Something to be said about Mike Trout's like demeanor or whatever, and like how it's not the most marketable, but that doesn't really matter. Kawhi Leonard's got television commercials, and that guy has the personality of a stone. So, like, that's not a real thing. And he's in the greater Los Angeles area. Like, it just should mesh. Aaron Judge is a guy that has become one of the faces of baseball. I think the commissioner's office ought to be looking at ways to get Juan Soto on more uh more television commercials because i think that guy is a star hot take alert juan soto is a star and i think he also plays a style that's highly marketable but i will say this i think baseball does a really good job on social media i think their social media game is really strong and it's the most affordable in my opinion uh package for watching out-of-market games. MLB.TV, I've always thought, does an amazing job and is very reasonably priced. Uh, That's how I'm able to watch Tigers games down here in Dallas. So they do a lot of digital things right. I just think that something needs to happen from the commissioner's office. I'm going to side with the players on this one. I think the commissioner's office needs to focus on that a little bit more. And I'm sure they are, but... The results are nothing. They have nothing to show for it. Whatever man hours have gone into it, they have shown nothing for it. So, uh, do you have something to add on that? Yeah, we could talk about this for hours. I think it's a shame that, like, my younger brother can't tell you what team Mike Trout plays for. Like, that's crazy. Like, somewhat interested in sports, keeps up with the NBA, the NFL. He knows the name Mike Trout, but he doesn't know what team that plays for. Like... Anyone with a, I think Mike Trout should be like a household name. Sometimes I'm like, I feel like growing up, like everyone knew who Barry Bonds was and like those guys. And I'm like, was that true? Or was that just because everyone I know liked baseball? I'm actually not sure. Like looking back on my own like childhood. Second point, another thing we could talk about for hours. I actually think the biggest problem facing the game is it's accessibility at the lower levels. I grew up playing a lot of this travel ball stuff and let me tell you it's kind of ridiculous um it shouldn't be that expensive to play baseball you shouldn't have to start shelling out thousands of bucks to play baseball starting absolutely when you're like nine years old 
even when I was like a junior in high school, I had kind of decided I probably wasn't going to pursue playing college ball. So I didn't ask my parents to pay $3,000 so I could travel around to showcase tournaments that summer. And that was kind of a thing of like, well, do you not care about baseball? Like, do you not care about your high school team? It's like, no, I'm going all in my senior year. It's probably my last year. That's all I care about. I feel like I shouldn't have to pay $3,000 to play the game of baseball for a summer, even at the high school level. And I think that does hurt um, interest and, and accessibility for the sport, which maybe leads to two decades later, people don't know what team Mike Trout plays for. Like maybe that's a legit criticism. And I'm worried that we are so far in that. I don't know how you reel it back. Like urban youth academies are a great thing. The RBI program is great, but guess who gets drafted kids coming out of these showcases. Like, I don't know how we reel that one back. And that, that does really worry me in terms of the future of the sport. No, absolutely. I echo everything you said there. And especially growing up in in the southern region of the United States, like baseball is literally year round. You get about maybe one to two months off in terms of there's not really competition, but high school starts in January, you have fall ball, and then obviously, you know, showcases and tournaments galore in the summer. So it's year round and that stuff adds up. And that was one of those things where once I realized my limitations as a baseball player, as a youth, I was like, I don't want to do travel baseball. Like I don't want to put my parents through like the weekend, the times, the money and all that stuff, because it's just, I just thought, I thought it was ridiculous then. (laughs) So, and it's only gotten worse. So, so, uh, okay. So let's, let's transition here to some rules that major league baseball is, uh, experimenting with in the minor league system. I'll just kind of read them off and then you can kind of come, come at me with whatever, whatever, uh, drives you crazy the most or drives you passionately the most. Slightly larger bases with a less slippery surface. That's going to be in AAA. A requirement, this is the big one, and this will probably what we talk about the most. A requirement that all four infielders have their cleats within the outer boundary of the infield dirt when the pitch is delivered. That's in AA. Stupid. Stupid. <laughs> a requirement that pitchers must must stop, step off the rubber to attempt a pickoff. That is in high A. That's obviously for uh, lefties or righties that go on the third base. But you know we're talking, you know, mostly lefties at first base. A limit of two pickoff attempts per plate appearance. That's in low A ball. A 15 second pitch clock. That's in low A west. And an automatic ball strike system in low A southeast. So shifts you're a fan (laughs) i'm a fan of the shift what is wrong with the shift why would you not put your defenders where the ball is most likely to be hit i'm not exactly sure how uh we settled on like the the configuration of the infield maybe i should do more research on, on baseball history but if i had to guess they're probably like oh it probably makes sense to have like a guy everywhere so that everywhere is covered right i think the infield was configured because people back in the day thought like, oh, that, that probably makes, makes the most sense. That's the most fair. Um, well, now it's like, no, we have all this data that shows us where a guy's likely to hit the ball. Let's put some defenders there. And that literally means there's a whole part of the field that is not covered. And it is easier said than done to hit 100 miles an hour the opposite way. But like hit the ball the other way. I, I'm, I am a traditionalist in that view. I am not a traditionalist in that. 
I think there is nothing wrong with the shift. Um, there are actually, you know, some numbers out there that say more balls, left-handers, uh, per one 538 article done in 2019, left-handers were putting more balls in play against the shift. Um, it's, it's not the sole cause of this three true outcomes, home run, strikeout, walk thing. And I also don't fully get the criticism there. What are the most exciting plays in baseball? I would say, number one, the home run. And number two, I would probably say the strikeout. Suddenly, oh, there are too many home runs and too many strikeouts. What players do we glorify? Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, Barry Bonds, Nolan Ryan, Roger Clemens. They were good. It, it is an oversimplification to say they just hit home runs and got strikeouts. But they were marketable, popular players because they hit home runs and they got strikeouts. Uh, I still think those things are fun to watch. I think the lack of balls in play, maybe that's a little bit of a problem. Um, I also think that's a little bit overblown. I don't think seeing a guy ground out to second base is very exciting. I don't think we need more grounds out, more ground outs to second base. Um, also like, okay, how many infielders even begin with their, their spikes on the dirt? Like, not many second basemen and shortstops do that anymore. So now you're saying just, okay, everyone has to have their spikes on the dirt. Like, how are you going to enforce that? If, if you really want to say, okay, two infielders on each side of the bag, just like, so it's a little more aesthetically pleasing. Like, maybe, maybe I could get down with that. Um, but I think people who hate the shift are, are just stuck in the past, need to realize it's part of the game. It's been part of the game. There is data out there that suggests that some teams are shifting too much to where it's not actually efficient. I think we might indeed see less, sh less shifts in the next five years than we did in the previous five years. We'll see. Maybe the data gets better. I don't know. Um, but pretty passionate. I don't think we need to ban the shift. So let me bring in a basketball analogy so you can kind of understand where I'm coming from. The whole when you're up by three on the last possession and you're on defense, the move is the foul, right? Like, that's the, that's the smart move. Mm -hmm. I hate that. Like, I just I just don't like it. I just would rather, like, even if it was, like, my favorite team, Pistons fans, you remember game two, 2004 finals, Kobe hits a shot to tie the game in the, in the final seconds. Larry Brown didn't want a foul. I, I like that. Now, that said, if I were coach, I would foul. Like I re it, like it's the it's the best thing to do. I just wish it weren't a thing. That's how I feel about shifts. If I were a manager, I would absolutely utilize it because it's not random. Like you're doing it because you have data that shows like these are spots where this guy likes to hit the ball and we can get outs, more outs. That's the name of the game. I wish they weren't a thing. Like I I wish that we didn't do it, but it is a thing. It's the right thing to do. That's sort of how I feel about shifts. And any sort of regulation of shifts, I think, is pointless. Like, I, I like I read that, and I think, what are we doing here? Like, wh wh what's the point? Like, are you going to have to... You're going to have to, like, ask these umpires to have their eyes on the heels of these infielders to make sure they're not, like, touching a blade of grass. Like, I just... I find it unnecessary. I think... It's a overcorrection uh, to something that people were outraged about. And sort of like when the NFL did reviews, like video reviews for past interference. That was an overreaction. 
and they got rid of it. Like that was, they realized that was dumb to have uh, video reviews for pass interference and to put in pass interference when that wasn't called initially, blah, blah, blah. So that's my general feeling on shifts. I, you're going to have to convince me, the other big one on here, the automatic strike zone, you're going to have to convince me why that's also necessary. All right, I'd, let's go back again to the founding of the game. Why did we decide it was a good idea to have umpires? I assume someone was like, we should probably have an unbiased third party determine whether this pitch was a ball or a strike, whether this uh, runner was safe or out, um, so that the rules of the game could be enforced. I think at the time, the best option was to pay some dude to come watch the game and determine ball strike safe out. I think it is now 2021 and we have technology that allows this to be done more efficiently. So why would you not utilize it? Why would you say, oh, but I, I really like bad calls. No one likes bad calls. Players don't like it. Fans don't like it. I guess it gets us something to talk about, something to get riled up about. But at the end of the day, especially if I'm a player, uh, I want things to be called consistently and fairly. And if there's an, some sort of automated strike zone that can make that happen, I am all for it. Hopefully it's better than like the Questex system that they messed around with in the early 2000s. I think it will be. I think even if it's off, it'll at least be off consistently. There's nothing worse than an inconsistent umpire. What are you supposed to do as a pitcher or a batter if you take one pitch and it's called a ball and then you take another pitch in the same location and it's called a strike? What are you supposed to do? Why would we allow such a system to exist if there is a better way of doing it? Uh, I think it's the most logical thing in the world to ensure better calls. I would still want some sort of umpire in the field to um, enforce rules, crazy things that can happen, probably even calls on the bases, which we of course now review with video. Tigers fans know Armando Galarraga was robbed of a perfect game that was absolutely a perfect game because at the time Major League Baseball did not have replay. Now I think it's foolish. Why could you not review the fact that Jason Donald was out by at least half a step? Like, like why not? And I think the same goes for balls and strikes. Um, maybe there's a way it even speeds up the game. I don't know. I think it is the most logical thing in the world to have a more consistent, better strike zone. Well, does that better process exist right now? Like, could we start one up right now? Like, they tried it and there were some flaws, but you say, like, we have a better system. Do we physically have one right now? That's a good question. I haven't seen the system. I assume that's part of why we're testing it out in low A before we just roll it out in the big leagues. If the system does not work, it is a different argument. Um, if the system doesn't work, then that's bad. But surely we can create, if we can, if we can, as Joe Madden said, like if we can launch a, uh, a lunar module right now, he wasn't talking about automated strike zones. I don't remember what he was, he was saying. Why can't we figure out the check swing? Also a great thing. Why can we not, if we can, we can put stuff into outer what space. What is a check swing? A I check have no swing? idea. That's what Joe Madden said yesterday. I think it's hilarious. I will alter Joe Madden's argument. If we can put stuff on the moon, why can we not devise a system? If we can measure the spin rate and spin axis for every pitch thrown, why can we not devise a system that will tell us if this pitch was a ball or a strike? I feel like it's doable. All right, you've convinced me. What do you think about video replay in general in Major League Baseball based on how it's used? Because I have this I have this thing where if you got to look at a, in all sports, if you have to look at a replay for more than 45 to 1 minute max, Call in the field stance because you obviously can't indisputably determine that it was wrong. That's a rule of thumb that I have that no major sport has seemed to deem 
uh, worthy of enacting. But I think if you got to look at it from longer than 30 to a minute, then you got to keep it, keep it on the field because otherwise, what are we doing here? Especially in basketball, which is such a rhythmic game. Baseball, how would you assess how they've ventured into the instant replay game? I, again, like it because I'm in favor of getting things right. I don't always love long delays, long reviews. I'm kind of with you on, like, if we, if it's, if it's clear we don't know, then call on the field should stand. But I, I also don't know that I like enforcing a time limit because maybe sometimes that extra look, that extra play um, does does create some clarity in terms of what the correct call should be. So I will always argue in favor of getting it right. I think people who are like, like the neighborhood rule at second base. Why should a runner be considered out if the guy did not have his foot on the back? I hated that. I hated that always. Like, like keep your foot on the back. Like, I think it's absurd that anyone is upset about that. Play by the rules. You have to have the ball, and you have to have your foot on the bag. And if you are cheating to try to get rid of the ball a, a split second sooner, then the runner should be safe at second base. I played second base. I probably pulled the neighborhood rule all the time, would take my foot off the bag and throw. Um, but now we have video. Stay on the bag a second longer. That's how teams are, are teaching it now. A split second. Make sure you go ball bag, then throw. It can be taught. Teams are teaching it. Um, I don't think replay has ruined baseball in that regard by any means. That's fair. And we're kind of moving a little bit more quickly because we're running long here a little bit. There's an upcoming labor dispute. There's an ongoing labor dispute between Major League Baseball and the Players Association. And and we talked on the phone last summer when they were going through uh, negotiating, getting back after uh, sitting out time when coronavirus uh, first kind of became mainstream, for lack lack of a better term. And the way I said it then, I still feel, I was like, I blame the owners, but it's like a 60% blame, and the players with like a hard 40. Because the players' union is arguably the strongest union in organized labor in the history of this country. I mean, they are a phenomenal union. And they do not budge on anything. They do not like to budge on anything. And that's like the history of their union that's like that that's what they prided themselves on like they just they just refuse to give in to the owners on anything and that's fine but when you when you have that kind of power i think you also have to have some blame when things fall through so that's kind of how i saw things last year and based on what i'm reading now there's not really anything that take me off that point is there um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I'm generally going to take a pro-labor stance. I don't love the way the owners have handled the pandemic or how free agency has been handled this year. Um, you know, I think, I, but at a certain degree, like, I, I no, I don't like how players got blame from kind of the mainstream public of like, well, why don't they just show up and play? They're rich. Like, no, again, if you sign a document that says I'm going to pay you $30 million, why would you then agree to play for $8 million? Like, I think I think that is a sensible argument to be made. Obviously, there were less games as a national emergency, and that's why we did end up arriving on prorated pay. Um, I think there are times the union can be a little bit stubborn, but um, ultimately, I think that if there's some sort of work stoppage, it, it would most likely be a lockout, and it would most likely be, uh, I think the owners would deserve most of the blame. I hope it doesn't come to that. Um, but I think I think 
the billionaires need to be able to make a few less million if it's for the good of the game and the good of the sport. Yeah, the union can be stubborn, but um, but I, th I think they're ultimately protecting what's best for the players, what's best for labor, and in, in most cases, as a result, what's good for baseball. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. It's one of those things where I, I'm sort of like, uh, it'd be like, you're like a third-party voter in a presidential election. It's like you're sort of being dragged, trying to, people are trying to drag you to either side, and you're sort of like, I'm cool right here. I just look at both of them as being, you know, it is billionaires versus millionaires, and I and I don't want to, I don't think it's right for people to just automatically side with the billionaires, but I also don't think, like, we should always defend the millionaires. I don't think just because they make less money in droves, but they make less money, they're automatically right, I guess would be the way I put it. Real quick, uh, Universal DH, you in favor of that or no? Yes. Why Why do we not have one this year? It's silly. Yeah, I mean, the weird thing is being a Tigers fan growing up, I don't have an infatuation with the pitcher batting. Like, I just don't. Like, I don't have an infatuation with the double switch. I don't have an infatuation with, you know, having the nine-hole hitter just bunt if there's a guy on base. Like, it just... I have no emotional tie to it. National League people do. National League people, old-timey baseball fan of National League teams, they love that. I don't really care. I think it's a good thing for baseball if they just make a universal DH. I grew up a Braves fan. Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, those guys could hit a little bit. They had Mike Hampton for a year. That guy could rake. It's still stupid. You want to talk about making the sport boring, let's have a guy who is not a good hitter be one of the nine hitters in our lineup. I think it's just silly. It's absurd. Every other level of baseball uses DH. I think it makes more sense. There's no point in having a guy go up there to hold his bat sideways and attempt to lightly dink the ball um, in hopes of moving over a base runner. Let's get rid of the DH. Or let's, no, no, sorry, no, sorry. Let's let's get rid of pitchers hitting. Keep the DH, please. Have it in the National League, Universal. Let's go. Well, it's not even the fact that they're bad hitters. It's that they're just not interested. That's like it's it's, it's a waste. Yeah. <laughs> Remember Pedro? Pedro, I think was <laughs> when he would get up to bat. I legitimately think he was thinking about what he was gonna have for dinner after the game. <laughs> like I don't think he even thought about the fact that he was in a batter's box. He barely even looked at the pitcher. Like it was just it was just a waste of time. So uh, I'm in agreements there. All right, as we uh, wrap this up, ran a little long, but I thought it was some pretty good discussions. Uh, last week, Cody, you mentioned that you were quote trying to go on a date. We do not want to introduce things and not follow up on this podcast. I think that's a to be a disservice to our listeners. So, were you successful? Were you able to go on a date last weekend? Oh, you're just grilling me today, Kieran. Uh, there was a date. It was the second date. I thought it went well. I'd give it like a 7 out of 10. Uh, but we are a little unclear on the status of a third date. So, maybe that's not a great sign. I don't know. We'll have to follow up on that one next time. Look, I you know I've been with the same woman for five years now, and you know we were recently engaged. I'm living vicariously through you. Like I, all these things are like it's just it's just a more. I, I have a very happy life, but your life is more interesting because you never know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to happen. So I, I'm always curious about what people do. The single people these days do. Um, I had a coworker last week who like asked me why a girl would use a certain emoji. I think it was a star emoji. I was like, dude, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. Like, I like I that I feel old now, but 
but yeah, so well, hopefully things, you know, continue to uh, to progress there. You know, it's it's just like a rebuild, building a relationship. It can be a slow process sometimes, Cody. For some reason, people don't seem to care about the the hosts of the Turning the Corner podcast that much. I mean, I thought I think that would <laughs> just be a terrific selling point, but apparently, you know. I will say this one last note before we get out of here. Um, one of my buddies, not a Tigers fan, but a good friend, so he's you know been listening to the podcast. He said he was at a trivia event, and one of the questions was which major league team has spring training in Lakeland, Florida. And he was like, because I listened to your podcast, I got that one right. So we are already rewarding our listeners. <laughs> and me- meaningless All bar right. trivia, we are getting points for them. So, All right, Cody. Uh, Wide-ranging and great discussions today. Uh, hopefully, by the time people are listening to this, the Oklahoma State Cowboys and future Detroit Piston Kay Cunningham will be in the Sweet 16. But uh, we will talk to you next week with more in-depth roster analysis as we get closer to opening day. So for Cody Stavenhagen, I am Kieran Steckley. Thank you for listening.